you on there. <laughs> Go Friars. <laughs> Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast. I am your host, Terrell Dozier, and on this Positive Impact Podcast, we talk about all topics that I love. Tonight's guest is a world-renowned sports psychologist. I'm very honored to have him on here tonight. Please welcome Dr. Joe Carr. We just need you to hit accept, Doc. Try this again. Okay. Okay. You can see me now? There you go. Okay, good. All right. Listen, good. Doc, I Thank ain't you very much, man. I mean, this <laughs> this plane um is just getting some gas, so we're ready to go, man. <laughs> now listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about the technical difficulties, Doc. You good with me? It's our secret, man. <laughs> oh man. Well, but I'm listen, glad, man. Glad to be on I, show, man. I good. I appreciate you. I appreciate you so much for coming on. You don't know how how excited I am to have you. Um the first question I gotta ask you is how you doing during this pandemic? Well, you know, it's for me it's all about pivoting. You know, um, this is not a normal situation. Um, my routine for traveling, my routine for interacting, my routine for sleeping, my routine for eating, all that stuff has been interrupted. Mm -hmm. So um, the difference between, you know, uh, being a champion and not being a champion is that I got to be flexible. And um, I'm, I'm learning how to become flexible uh, during this pandemic. I'm learning, you know, that there's new ways how to cope. And, uh, and if I do that, I think, you know, I'll be okay, just like everyone else. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So we only got we only got an hour, but like going through your story, man, I could probably talk to you forever. So let's try to let's try to get into it and let's and let's give the viewers as much as we can about you, man. So I right, get that shovel. Let's dig. Let's go. So <laughs> let's, let's 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 go back in the day. Take me to the beginning growing up in D.C. Well, for me, I mean, my story is kind of atypical, but may not be atypical because I was a basketball addict. You know, um, that's all I did. I ate, sleep, and drank basketball. I grew up in the projects in Southeast D.C. And, you know, there was a lot of fire and a lot of hunger there. Um, but everything was skewed toward playing basketball. And um, so much so that I stayed back six times, you know, mm. uh, three times in the third grade. <laughs> uh 
two, two times in the sixth grade and one time in the seventh grade. Mm. So with all of that, people began to think, okay, well, is there something wrong with this guy upstairs? Does he have some special needs? And of course, you know, according to the diagnostic assessments that they gave at that time, you know, I was placed in a slow learning class. Uh, another guy famous who was in that same situation was John Thompson. He was like, like my big brother. Anyway, that's another story. Mm -hmm. But in any event, um, playing basketball, people begin to think, well, you can't be retarded if you're playing like that. <laughs> if you're scoring 25 or 30 points, something is, is definitely wrong. So uh, one of the teachers kind of reached out and said, well, look, if you can somehow make the honor roll uh, in my sixth time uh, around in the seventh grade, they said, you know, we'll skip you to a, a vocational school. And I said, what do you mean skip me? He says, well, you know, you have to get all A's, at least one B, and then we can work out a situation for you to, to skip. So make a long story short, uh, I did that. That challenge was given to me. I was skipped, and I went to a vocational school, and that was the beginning of my high school journey. So let's go back a little bit before that. You know, I came up in a very religious uh, uh, situation. My mother, she was a pianist, um, and she was like uh, an evangelist. She went from church to church and she played. Her goal was to get me to be, you know, uh, a child prodigy preacher. But that didn't work out very well because I had other thoughts in mind. Um, and so while she was trying to push me into the church, I was trying to push myself to be an All-American. But I just didn't make the connection that if you were going to be a great basketball player, you had to be pretty good in the books. So that's where I had to kind of connect myself with older players. Uh, so Big John, you know, he grew up in the same projects as I did, and so did Elgin Bell and other guys like that. And uh, I kind of connected myself to those guys because they had already gone on to school and they had some success. And I was kind of living vicariously through them. So I got the wake up call, you know, after, you know, that uh, six times stand back. And I said, okay, well, this maybe could be my turn to really uh, to make something of myself. So I go to Bell Vocational High School in DC. I make all city. Um, and then I am, I'm playing basketball in the summer and this priest, you know, sees me playing. He says, you know, it may be a good idea for you to try to come to a Catholic school. Well, in DC, Catholic school is a big deal. Yes. You know, and I, I transferred to a place called Bishop McNamara. Now, I didn't know at the time that, you know, you had to have so many core classes and all that kind of stuff. So I transferred to Catholic school and I didn't have all the classes I needed in order to, to be eligible. Mm -hmm. So that was a big setback. So I ended up staying, you know, uh, not playing in my uh, uh, junior and senior year in high school. And that became a very tumultuous situation for me. I just went crazy. So I ended up, you know, uh, going to junior college and uh, then playing at Sacramento state. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it dawned on me, like, uh, you know, basketball may not be my ticket, even though I've invested so much time in it. So uh, somebody said to me, well, you know, they got this thing called psychology. Why don't you try to do that? So I tried it. And um, I went on and I got my master's, you know, in counseling. And so my first gig, my first job out there in Sacramento was at San Quentin. Uh, and so since I'm from the hood and, you know, I'm, I'm not really scared by guys, they were doing, I guess the average guy was doing some like three life sentences or something like that, really bad situation. I really got my chance to really show that I was a good counselor 
by working in that environment. So from correctional counseling, you know, um, I said, this is not going to work for me. There's a lot of stress. I'm very familiar with this situation. I want to find something that I'm familiar with. So let's try sports. So George Raveling, he was uh, uh, a coach at that time in a place called Washington State University, but also he's from my hood in Washington, D.C. Um, he said, hey, man, I can try to get you in to, uh, to school in Washington State and maybe, you know, try your hand in them being a doctor. So I said, let's try that and see what it works. So I got to Washington State, you know, I, I, you know, get my doctorate. And then I hooked up with a dude named Bobby Dandridge. And uh, Bobby was playing with the Washington Bullets at that time. And uh, also he played with the Bucks. And he said, you know, hey, man, you know, let's, let's put our heads together. Maybe we could do something special. So what do you have in mind? He says, look, I had a crazy life, you know, as a, as a basketball player, you know, uh, in the NBA. I did a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of womanizing. He said, there's a lot of guys who have my story, but they don't really have any help. So let's see if we can do something about it. So we both came up with this idea of a rookie transition program. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was like in 1984. Right. So uh, Oscar Robinson thought that that was a good idea. So we, we, we hooked up with Oscar and Oscar took us to, to Stern and Stern said, that's, let's, that's, that's dope. That's crazy. Let's make it happen. Right. So, with my skills in psychology and with, with Bobby's, you know, experience playing in the NBA, we kind of uh, had a good marriage. And um, as a result of us developing the rookie transition program, uh, I guess we were kind of before our times, every sport, whether it's uh, football, whether it's baseball, whether it's uh, soccer, now everybody has a, a rookie transition program. So that was, that's going to be our, uh, should I say, name the fame, you know, hopefully, we get to the Hall of Fame as a result of doing that. But the rookie transition program at that time had to had to come about because in 1984, the league was plagued with a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, cocaine was just taking over, you know, the league, and um, it was really impacting their brand. Um, and you know, so with the rookie transition program, you know, we said we got to do something with life skills. We got to do something with mentoring. We got to do something with life after that. All that stuff. Right. And it just kind of gave, you know, the players a new opportunity to reinvent themselves mm -hmm. so they could be commodities, which they mm -hmm. really are right now. Right. So marketing took off. Uh, the players started to get more involved in advertising. I mean, it just really became a game changer. Absolutely. So uh, Bobby D, as I like to call him, I mean, he he was a really uh, heavy thinker. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but he played uh, in the early days. Uh, Norfolk State and so he and a guy named Earl Pearl were kind of going at it uh, neck to neck in that league mm -hmm. and it was Bobby Dandridge who was the all-time leading scorer not Earl the Pearl mm -hmm. um, and and Earl you know uh, to this day you know um, is given credit for being you know the cream of the crop there but really it was it was Bobby and the reason why I'm mentioning that is because for whatever reason you know Bobby uh, as skilled as he was and played on two championship teams, you know, uh, and then went to Washington Bullets and then led them to a national a world championship. He never really got his due. He's the, he never really got into the Hall of Fame. And to this day, Oscar and so does Kareem, everybody's always pushing, hey, man, you know, don't forget Bobby D because, I mean, he really did a number on Dr. J and everybody else who came his way. Yeah. But um, if he doesn't get into the Hall of Fame, you know, as a player, hopefully – he gets in the Hall of Fame for us developing this rookie transition program.
No question uh, I'm about it. I'm probably rambling too much, but I mean, I nah, it's okay. Listen, I nah, I'm gonna <laughs> listen. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go back a little bit because I want to make sure that <clears throat> I want to touch on your education real quick before we bring it back current and talk about your undergrad degree in psychology, and then you also got a master's degree as well. And Two then, of them. <laughs> and, yeah, you got. And then not only did you get your doctorate, but you were the first first African American to graduate from that program at Washington that's State right. University. So I think right. that's I think that's truly important coming from a kid who stayed back six times. You know, what I mean? like, <laughs> who would have who thought? No, so I'm I'm huge on education, man. I think that's I think that's super important that you were so proactive um, back then and you turned a negative into a positive. So I definitely want to give you your love on that one. Um so do me a favor before we, you know, we talk about the NBA rookie program. You you worked with all types of players, LeBron and AI and Carmelo and you know you've worked with so many great college basketball teams, you know, the big names, the Kentuckys, the Yukons and stuff. So talk about how you get involved um, with these programs and with these players. Is it through, is it just our reference or is it they just look you up and say, listen, we know your work and this is what we want you to do? Well, um, so we have to go back to my early days. Um, after I got my doctorate, you know, um, at Washington State, I came home uh, and I tried to figure out what am I going to do to make a difference, and um, I, I felt a lot, a lot of guilt because all my friends, most of my friends who I grew up with in the projects, they were, they had died from, you know, a lot of different things. And so I'm going to say, what am I going to do to make a difference? How am I going to separate myself from all these people? And now I've got my doctorate. I'm going to make a lot of money. That's going to happen, but something was missing, and so. What I had to do was I had to reach back into my head and I had to say, well, somebody helped me along the way and they made a difference. And, and who did that? And I remember uh, John Thompson and the guy by the name of Jerry Chambers, he played for Utah. Uh, they had a gym and uh, on Sundays and all the guys would come to the gym and we would, we would hoop. And, um, and, and I, they allowed me to play with them. They were older. And that's when I started to learn about going to college and all that kind of stuff. And I said, you know what? Maybe I can develop a gym too. So I developed something called Doc's Gym. And the concept that I had, which was a little different from my predecessors, was that I would get all the guys who were the All-Americans and the All-Stars, and I would also get those guys who were under-recruited, who were not on the radar, and the haves versus the have-nots, the underdogs versus the top dogs. And I would you know, create this uh, kind of, uh, uh, synergy uh, on Sundays, and we used to call it church. And uh, so the guys would come there, whether, you know, there were Adrian Dantley, uh, I mean, there's a lot of who's who's that were in my gym. And uh, so the college coaches, uh, Lynn Bias, all those guys, you know, would come. In fact, Lynn Bias, I'm, I'm taking a, a little derail here. Lynn Bias only had one scholarship, you know, uh, when he came to my gym. He was very under-recruited. Nobody really knew about him. Uh, but anyway, people like Lynn Bias and I had some other guys like Adrian Dantley and coaches would come and they would say, well, who is that guy? You know, who, who is he? One such name was a guy named Jerome Williams, Junkyard Dog. I don't know if you know, remember him. Absolutely. He had no scholarships. And for example, uh, one summer when he first came to my gym, he was 6'2". And by the end of the summer, he was 6'9". So then John comes to the gym and says, who is that nigga? <laughs> that's 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 jy uh 
things like that would happen. And and I'm I'm trying to rush through this, but I'm I need to be very strategic. I think over a twenty year period that I had the gym, we placed over three thousand kids into college. Um and I was uh I take note of that because, you know, in DC like New York, there are a lot of guys who can really play, maybe play better than the guys in the pros, but because mm -hmm. of lack of discipline and whatever, they just decided to give up on it. But most of the guys that came to my gym and went to get a four degree, some became doctors and lawyers as well. That really became a laboratory, you know, for education. But basketball was the vehicle. Yeah, so yeah. uh was there because Alan had never heard of Moochie Norris and Alan's just coming to Georgetown. I said, I got a guy that I think will kick your ass. And uh <laughs> so um I had he and Moochie uh play a one on one full court game uh to, to eleven points. And Moochie, you know, did a crossover on him. He said, What in the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> And that was, that's an untold story. That's how he basically learned how to do a crossover, you know, mm -hmm. in Doc's gym. Yeah. Uh, so we had a lot of situations. Another one was when it was to 11 points, you could score two ways. You could score either by making baskets or you could uh, score by having three stops in a row. So if you got three stops in a row, we would call that a kill. Okay. So that's become very popular now because I now use that in my psychological game planning with players. Now, the purpose of a kill is if you get three stops in a row, there's so much devastation that you can do to opponent, you know, if you stop them, you know, uh, six times during the course of a game. And now one stop is, is three, but if you do that six times, you know, that's uh, uh, based on my studies of 4,322 teams. If you can stop somebody a total of six times, three times in a row, you have a chance of winning that game. <laughs> so, what came out of that laboratory is the kill. And when I started using it with the team, I noticed that guys became less consumed with their individual numbers and more consumed with the fight. And so anytime you can get a guy to share his selfishness for the sake of the fight, now you have a person who could be a good teammate. You mm -hmm. have a person who can probably be a good connecting person with the coach. And then, you know, life is better. And that's what I call chemistry when you lose yourself in the fight. So the gym was very instrumental for me experimenting with different things, which I now use in my practice when I'm trying to help teams to become from uh, underdogs to top dogs. So, um, uh, yeah. So church brings back a lot of memories. Uh, I have guys all over the world who played in that. You know, um, Dikembe Mutombo is another example mm -hmm. of that. When he mm -hmm. came to America, the two things he could say was Doc and McDonald's. <laughs> 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 and a good story about him was uh, when he came to my gym, um, he didn't really speak very much English. But I told him, I said, you can probably impact the world in two ways. If you talk and by blocking shots. So one of the things I would do is I would raise the basket from 10 feet to 13 feet so that he could stretch his arms. And in doing that, you know, he now was not concerned with anything else except for tracking the ball and blocking shots. It's probably the best thing I did for him. We still talk about that today. But those are examples that, you know, that I'm, I'm plucking from as I go through this because you're, 
you're forcing me to go back. I don't usually go back in my memory decks that way. <laughs> but, but the church, the gym, was a good way for me to make a difference. So as a young clinician, um, I thought that if I could give back in this way, have the haves play against the have-nots and the have-nots get scholarships, you know, this would be a way that could really, should I say, upset the balance in terms of guys getting a chance to do something for themselves or for their families. No question about it. I love that story. You, I was going to bring that up later, man, because I thought that was an incredible story. The, NC, the NCAA actually wasn't happy with you with the Jerome Williams situation. I, I read about <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But we ain't going to get into that either, Doc. We ain't going to get into that either. Talk to us about your mantra of rare, R-A-R-E. Well, you know, based on 4,000 teams, um, I had to figure out what separated the championship teams from the losing teams? And uh, I came up with four factors uh, doing statistical analysis. And the four factors were uh, rare, R-A-R-E. Rare stands for relationships. In my view, if those relationships were really tight and really connected um, and were non-superficial, and you and I could go out and, and um, have dinner after we kicked each other's butt in practice, then that's a serious relationship. That's one that, you know, that's worth <laughs> investing in. Um, and I found that if I could help a team, you know, to develop that kind of brotherhood, you know, uh, during my stay with them, that would be something special. The, the next an acronym stands uh, is A, stands for accepting challenges. Um, that's, a, that's a unique one because um, if I'm not able to call you out, if I'm not able to tell you that your breath stinks, I'm not able to say, you know what, you're not running hard enough or you're not talking loud enough and you're not able to accept that at a high level, it's probably going to be difficult for me to coach you. Mm -hmm. It's probably going to be real difficult for my teammates to coach you. Right. So that's going to eliminate you from that. Mm -hmm. And so accepting challenges became another factor. Another factor was uh, recovery from mistakes. Um, a lot of guys that I work with in college and in pros, they, uh, they want to be perfect. They obsess about miss or made shots. They obsess about, you know, making mistakes during a turnover or, um, or um, just making mistakes in general. So you have to have guys, you know, who have very short memories. You have to have guys who uh, don't really care about, you know, whether or not the ball goes in. Um, and if you can have those guys who can make quick recoveries and if they have a bad game or if the team have a bad game, now you have a guy who has good DNA. He's got the material to say, you know what? I can withstand anything you throw at me. And the last um, an acronym is E, executing coach directions. You got to have a guy who basically says, you know what? I have blind trust in, the, in whatever the coach is selling. I'm a yes man. Uh, I'm going to do whatever he says because I believe in them. So I've eliminated a lot of guys right there. You know, RAR, I've eliminated a lot of guys who can't play for me. Mm -hmm. Now, the tough thing is that everybody doesn't come into your gym or come into your um, team ready-made. Yeah. So you have to look at those guys who have the potential or the propensity to drift in those four factors. If they can drift toward the, those four factors, then those are the kind of guys you want to go after. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, it becomes 
becomes really perplexing for coaches. That if I score 20 points a game, you uh, just to be a yes man because of my ego, mm -hmm. then, you know, team and you be a cancer and you, I lose my job and right. then you be a pro. You know, so coaches are, 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 I take all that stuff from those guys who can score 20 points a game and get 15 rebounds, or do I deal with the guy who can fit within the rare uh, paradigm? I go with the guy who can fit in the rare paradigm because that's the guy in the long run that's going to help me and I'm going to be able to teach him something. He's going to develop some life lessons out of this. Right. And the life lesson that he's going to learn from this is going to be so much bigger than basketball. It's, it's, it's a game changer. So, uh, yeah, rare is, is my mantra. Um, I have been able to use that with a lot of teams with a lot of success. And so whether I'm working with a Notre Dame or a Florida State or a UConn who who, whose coach has never coached before, or, you know, just a lot of teams, I mean, who are not expected to win anything. And all of a sudden they see that these teams are rolling over these guys. You know, you have to say, like, what's going on here? Well, the, what's going on here is that we have a bunch of guys who are subscribing to, to a belief system. It works. And, uh, and as a result of it's working, you know, guys are buying in. Mm -hmm. So sacrifice is a big thing with Rare because that's what it is. If, if I'm able to sacrifice on a high level. Uh, and that's a big thing. And I'm jumping again because um, most of the families that we see these days, sacrifice is not part of the equation. Mm. The parents want to overgive because they've had bad experiences. And I can understand that. I mean, you know, mm. as a father, you know, uh, an uncle, I mean, I don't want anybody to have experience I have, but at the same time, you know, um, sometimes you have to say, no, you can't get those Jordans like that. You know, mm. Um, mm. I can't give you the $20 that you want. You know, you're going to have to work for it. Um, those are the kind of kids who say, yeah, Doc, I, I mean, I understand I can't get what I want, you know, but I'm willing to wait my turn. Those are the kind of kids I want, you know, yeah. but those mm. kids are hard to find. With our Florida State team, for example, when guys go in the game, you know, um, and let's just say they're not doing well and they sit down on the floor and they, they come on the bench, and, and let's say they are starters, but the guy who goes in for them, they're having a great game. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll say, Coach, don't take, don't take him out. <laughs> Let that guy play. I mean, those, that's unheard of. But you yeah. have to cultivate that kind of stuff, you know, on your team. You have to be willing to say, these are my principles rare. I'm not going to compromise regardless. And either you're in or you're out. And uh, so that's, that's what it is. But, so you brought up another term that just got me going. Rare is just a... <laughs> is a great uh, metaphor, and I use it all the time. My biggest thing, though, uh, in a team is that I like working with the coaches first because some of the coaches, there's a lot of pressure on them, you know, to win. And I don't necessarily equate winning with just, uh, mm -hmm. how am I going to make you a better person, man? I mean, how, how am I going to get you to trust me? Right. You know, because if you can learn, you know, the tool of trusting, you can have a good wife, you can have a good kid. So, so many things you could do with that. And um, I, 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 I want to win that game. And that's the game I want to win. But that sounds so corny. What's the relevance of that? Well, the, the relevance of that is if I can teach a person how to trust, and if I can teach a person how to sacrifice, and if I can teach a person just to give up themselves at a deep level, man, you know, whatever athleticism you have, you're going to give me everything. And I'll take that anytime, you know? 
right. you're going to give me your passion. You know, you're going to give me your hunger. So um, there's a lot of guys, you know, who are all Americans um, and they've got all the accolades. But when you throw a loose ball, when you give them a chance to get a loose ball, they're not going to die after the loose ball. They're just not going to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> they let somebody else have it. Yeah. Well, is that the guy you're going to take? No, right. I'm going to pass on that guy. <laughs> now, I may get fired, but if I get fired, I mean, I'm going to get fired my way, if that makes sense. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so I um, so I did a show last week where I spoke about and, and, and told my story last week. And um, when I was in college, I had a problem with with my um, with my um, college coach and wound mm -hmm. up leaving school. Now, right. in reading your story, I guess I, I guess we could have used your midcourt roundtable. Kind of talk about coach and player conflict resolution. So talk about talk about that a little bit and why that is so important. The 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 big piece to the coach and player relationship. But what happens when things aren't going good? What can that go to the relationship? And what's your work there? Can I first take a team. Um, I'm with them for maybe three or four days, and we're in a room for maybe 16 hours a day. And for some of the people listening to this, they might say, well, damn, it's a long time. How do you keep their attention? We're breaking down walls. We're unlocking doors. We're getting to see people at the metaphysical level. We're, we're like a MRI. We're going all the way down to the bone. Yeah. And they're sharing their stories, and they're talking about themselves in so many levels. There's a lot of crying going on. There's a lot of sharing going on. So why am I saying that? As a result of doing that work early on, um, you get to know players beyond the superficial. You get to know, you know, who they are, what they are, and and the defense mechanisms and the facades that they put up. Um, and they see themselves in their players because there are other guys in there are, are doing the same thing. For example, uh, I'll give you a case. For example, there's one guy who he had an anger management problem. And um, he, he uh, every time the coach would criticize him, he would want to fight the coach. Um, I had another guy who um, uh, he had an anger problem. Uh, but the way he dealt with his problem is that he want to run. He, you know, he'd run out the room and run out, you know, run off the court. But both guys had one thing in problem, and it was anger. Um, so let's take the first guy uh, who would strike out. Come to find out, Underneath that anger, his father made him watch uh, while he burned her alive. Um, and he was like seven years old and he was helpless. And so he had so much rage, he was so traumatized. He just happened to be a basketball player. So all this rage that he was developing over the years, he was kind of developing that because he was waiting for his dad to get out of jail because his whole life script was to be a basketball player, to be strong, and then kill him. So that came out, you know, in our circle, you know, and um, the tears were real. The emotions were real. And so what I did was I had him to write a letter, an unmailed letter to his dad. Uh, I want him to let all those feelings and those emotions out. And of course, you know, there was not a dry eye in, in the room. And, you know, most of the kids that are on these college teams, they don't have fathers. They have beasts with their fathers. So they could all relate to this, you know. Right. And so 
once this letter was written, you know, I said, now you're going to have to do something that you've never done before. And that is after you write this letter, you're going to read it. And then we're all going to have a burial. You know, I'm going to have your brothers in this room put together a coffin. I want you to put that letter in a coffin and we're going to Go outside and we're going to bury it. Because if you don't let loose this anger, if you don't go any further with you, you can't go any further with us right here and now. There's no way in the world we can go for a championship, which is going to be the most stressful. So everybody got to, we, we yeah. really got to, we got to dig deep. So this kid, oh man, he, he now is an accountant you know, uh, on Wall Street doing phenomenal job. Yeah. But that gives you an example that, you know, when I'm doing this stuff, it's either your 10 toes in or your no toes in. And my job is to make sure that I exercise all those emotions. I exercise all those feelings so that the trauma that they are experiencing, which they will continue to, to experience, it's manageable. It's manageable mm -hmm. to the point where that person is coachable. And if they're coachable, then we got a chance. So if you multiply that situation times maybe 12 other guys in the room who are using that guy as a mirror, you really have a very exhaustive situation at the end of four days. I mean, it's very draining. So after that's over with, <laughs> you're able now to coach it because there's right. so much weight that's been lifted off of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, nah, it makes a lot of sense. So we're able to take these guys who heretofore were knuckleheads who weren't fitting in now that they have quote unquote been exercised of their pain they now feel no threat about confrontation about being challenged about love about <laughs> connecting because sometimes with these guys that's more fearful than than fighting connecting no then i have these guys hug each other i mean most of you guys have never hugged another man before I mean, that just, but I always give them this situation. I said, when you look on, on TV and on the championship game, what do you see? Do you see people uh, at arms live with each other? Or do, what do you see? They say, well, we see them hugging and crying. Yes, it's an emotional deal. And so we've got to have that level of intimacy if we're going to make this thing, you know, what it needs to be. So those are the kinds of things that we do in order to make this a championship opportunity before they get the basketball. Now, once they get the basketball on top of those other behavioral things that we're teaching them, how to be intimate, how to be close, how to stay connected, now we have an opportunity to do something special. So right. we don't care if you're playing UCLA or Kentucky or anybody else. It doesn't matter because we've dealt with the, the greatest pain, the pain inside of here. Right. <laughs> that was oh, the that's... biggest ghost. Does that nah, sure. nah, that's that's great. That's, that's, that's super powerful. So because mental health is such a big thing nowadays, you know what I mean? More so than it was back in the day. How, you know, what can we do <clears throat> to peel back the layers earlier? You know what I'm saying? And what signs, you know, should we be looking for? Like youth sports is such a, it's such a stressful thing, you know, like it's become more of a business. It's, it's trying to get to the scholarship. And for some kids, it's trying to get to the pros to take care of families. So there's so much pressure built up in, you know what I'm So how can we support earlier in life to, to better equip our student athletes to deal with this? And you heard this many times, but it does start with the family. 
And I, I mentioned this on another show before. We have something now called Daddy Ball, where these fathers are so crazy about their kid making that they organize AU teams and they just drive and drive. We've got to get these parents to accept about your feelings. Yeah. It's okay to share. It's okay, you know, to say I love you. Yes. I mean, and that level of intimacy, if we can start that at home, that's going to be the, the difference maker. Because if I don't think it's normal to talk about my stuff, mm -hmm. I'm going to stuff my stuff, and yeah. then I'm going to implode. Right. And then it's going to be too late. So. Have these difficult conversations with your son about your life. Mm -hmm. Talk about your story. Mm -hmm. Let him know it's okay to hurt. It's okay to experience joy. Mm -hmm. It's okay to talk about fear. Mm -hmm. Because if you can do those three things, you know, things like depression and things like anxiety, at least if, you, if you're coached on how to talk about it, now when you reach a person like me who have tools, I can give you tools so you can work with it. But if you're on lockdown, if you're on maximum security because you haven't had the training at home to talk about stuff, you're not going to talk to a person like me. You're going to run like hell. You're mm -hmm. going to deflect. Does that make sense? Nah, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. So when you're when you're working with a team or you're working with a program, how extensive is it? Like, so have there been teams like you talk about the first four days? Have there been teams? Do they bring you back during certain points of the year to kind of continue the work? Because yeah, I stay with the team. I stay with the team the whole year. Uh, different teams have different budget and needs. Mm -hmm. Like one team, you know, I'm with them at least uh, twice a month for the entire mm -hmm. year. Right. Another team, I may be with them three times a year. I may go in the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, and for postseason stuff. So it mm -hmm. depends. on the need of the team, you know, would, would dictate on how much, you know, I, of course, some coaches don't see what I see. So it's quickness and strength. You got some emotional toughness in here. You know, but if you're assisting relationships, and if you're not, this is going to be the wild, wild west. I'm going to have to open up his his heart and open up his program, which is very difficult for some guys. And say, okay, doc, I'm I'm naked now. I'm willing to work with you. I'm I'm willing for you to give me some tools. That's hard for some coaches to do. I mean, extremely difficult. See how many guys I've helped, you know, get to another place who were no name guys, but now all of a sudden they're doing well. I said, well, shit, maybe you know a little something, something. Right. And but that humility is is and that open this and that vulnerability is hard for some to get to. Does that make sense? Nah, that's great. And so talk about so now that I'm talking to you and this is a, a great educational background, a, a huge educational background and you're obviously very very knowledgeable but what i find what i'm finding out about you right now is you have a balance of you're not just trying 
to over-talk me we're actually reaching each other because, you know, maybe we grew up how important that is because, you know, way younger than you that might think like, oh, this is an old guy, but you're finding a way to, to connect with them. So talk about how your story resonates with, with their story. Well, I just have a one basic premise that I don't want to be invisible. I want to be available. And what I mean by that is if I'm invisible, I'm using a lot of big words that mm -hmm. don't make sense to them. Mm -hmm. I'm acting, you know, my body language is distant. I'm not necessarily um, being transparent with my story. And as a result of that, I'm not accessible. So being accessible is like what we're doing now, you know? We're talking, we're using common language. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing pieces of myself, you're sharing pieces of yourself, but it's strategic, you know? Um, so you have, to, I have to, you have to have a lot of clinical uh, footwork to do what I do because it's not as easy as it looks. Right. But at the same time, you know, it is based on basic interpersonal stuff that I have learned over the years. Some street, <laughs> some family, <laughs> and some academic. Right. And that crossover, if I can use that metaphor, mm -hmm. you know, allows me, you know, to to do what I do. Mm -hmm. But um I also have learned will power people with your story. It's right. about you. Right. And my job is to get you you by unlocking doors through what sentences or whatever the question is is like the best question in the world tell me what's going on with you baby yeah. <laughs> you know you know and i can help guide you because most of the guys that we work with the kids they're not talkers Mm -hmm. They want to be on Instagram, they want to be on text. <laughs> they want to do all those things which does do not involve, you know, exchanging information. Mm -hmm. So um, my biggest challenge when I work with the team is to get guys to talk to each other, just mm -hmm. to have tough conversations. Mm -hmm. So we have things like challenge circles, step on each other's toes. Prox I'm using a lot of different things, but a lot of different exercises that I have developed mm -hmm. in order to get to jumpstart people to talk. Absolutely. Because a team that doesn't talk is a dysfunctional fucking team. They just are. They, they, they're doomed to fail. Yeah. So I got to get people to normalize it. It's okay to talk, mm. you know, even mm -hmm. if it sounds nonsensical, but having a conversation. So I developed this exercise called Chatter. Now, this sounds crazy. So I'm using a, a beautiful place. Uh, there's a team in Santa Barbara. Let's use that because that's uh, as a beautiful place. So Santa Barbara, they came in second in the league this year, and uh, they won 20-some games. But they're a non-talking team. So if you can visualize being in Santa Barbara in this beautiful white sand beach, I had the guys walk, I'm going to say, maybe a mile and a half down the beach where we couldn't see them. I said, this exercise is called chatter. And I said, for 15 minutes straight, nonstop, you got to talk. Yeah. You got to chat. Yeah. And I want you to make the connection between that chatter and being in a crowd and hear yourself talk. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we have to generate energy. And the way we're going to do that is through chatter. Right. And I said, even if you're hoarse or throat, if you're hoarse and you feel like you can't talk anymore, I want your teammate to point to you and tell them to chatter to talk more. Because 
we have to have some accountability with that. Mm -hmm. So the point I'm making is that I have to come up with um, exercises that are a little off the hook per se, but they're fun, but I can relate them to the game and to life. Right. And, and so what we did with the chatter thing is that I said, coach, we're going to take a, uh, now picture this and we're going to take a, a video of this and we're going to play this during different times of the year to trigger them to understand like this day has relevance to days going forward. Mm -hmm. So they had lost two games in a row, you know, to a team. And it was because their talk, they had dip, I call it dips. When they, you're not talking, you know, you have a dip on defense. You're not going to run hard. You're not going to uh, uh, have high hands. You're not going to, you know, do the things you need in order to, to hunt the ball. But mm -hmm. they had dips as, with regard to their talking. So I said, we need to take that video out and we need to play it to remind them that that beach was just not, you know, a vacation. <laughs> you know, it, it was a tool that they have to use continuously. So they got reacquainted again with the juice, with the energy, you mm -hmm. know, via chatter. And they went on, you know, to uh, win the rest of their games. It just so happens that when this COVID-19 thing came down, that was the end of the season. But I think they had a chance to win it. Okay. But I, I say this to say that, <clears throat> you know, the talking thing, I can't emphasize enough, whoever's listening as a players, you may be working on your jump shot, it may be butter. You, you may be working on your dunk, it may be butter. But if you can't talk, you know, during the course of a game or in practice, it's going to be very hard to use you. I mean, it really is. Right. So I hope that, you know, you use this piece of advice. Conversation is connecting. Talking is just everlasting. And I just want anybody out there who's interested in playing sports to understand how valuable conversation and talking is. So with that, I'm going to use another example. Um, mm -hmm. Because uh, before I started working with them, men and having those guys, they always had a lot of athletes and stuff. Man, they had a lot of yeah. athletes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so the only thing was missing was juice. And mm -hmm. so juice, I define juice just us in combat every day. So I developed something called EGBs, energy generating behaviors. I'm not going to give you what they are. I'm going to give you mm -hmm. a sample of them. So um, one would be running the floor in six seconds. Another one would be getting offensive rebounds. Okay. Another one would be getting deflections. Another one would be in steals. In other words, I have like 20 of them. So I gave this group the EGBs, and I swear to God, they went through the ACC like Sherman running through Georgia. I mean, they, <laughs> they, I mean, they would play – uh, they play Duke. They play North Carolina. Now, when you see Florida State, mm -hmm. you say, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. You know, because we play 11 guys, um, sometimes 12 guys, and we're not consumed with the individual. We're consumed with just hunting the basketball, right. all because of talking. Talking has really made a difference in that situation. I'll use that as a live example. Right. And I can use others, but that's, that's one that comes to mind. Texas is another one. I, mm -hmm. I just took on Texas. You know, everybody gave up, up on this year, Texas, but watch out coming up this year, you know. Uh, we we got a shot. Right. Now, my goal is, I know you're going to laugh at this, my goal is to have two African-Americans play for a national championship. What do you think okay. about that? Okay, now, now I think I think it's needed. I think what would be the significance of that? That would be huge. Be, what would, no, be huge. Besides that, what would be, in your mind, what would be the significance of that? In your mind. <laughs> 
to me, to me, it would just be about just having two black coaches just competing at the at the highest level, and then see, that gives hope. Yeah, yeah. See, I see it. I don't see it as a basketball thing. Mm -hmm. I see it as a leadership thing because now young kids can say, "Damn, wow!" You know, th these guys taking cap, they're captains of their institutions, mm -hmm. and they can run stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's I think that's really big because. It You are not a sports announcer. You got to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not you. You can't just focus on recruiting anymore, right? Yeah. And guys playing for a national championship, man, that would be woo. That would be sweet. I'm nah. sorry to get divergence there, but that. that now, nah, listen, that. man. Listen, this is all. <laughs> listen, let me tell you something. I got. I'm taking so many notes over here, man. Like this is <laughs> this is all. This is this is definitely awesome, man. Um, so with the with the rookie transition program. You know, I think transition is the biggest thing. You know, I do a um, I do a transition program for eighth grade student athletes going into their freshman year of high school. You know, I know a lot of colleges take the seniors and they get them on campus early to transition them. So talk about how important it is, you know, when you feel like at one level, you know, you got it all figured out and all of a sudden you got to jump to another level. Talk about talk about that challenge and especially on the highest level with this rookie transition program. They're coming into the NBA with a ton of what you go through with that. Well I no longer, you know, get involved with that anymore. We we hand that over my my dream for that program which which has come to fruition is that they deal with several aspects of life, uh, personal, family, business, and financial investments. And they carve it up and they present it, you know, to the players. So it's at this level, the magnitude. Then, you know, teach them how to develop boundaries. Um, because with all this notoriety and and with all this fame, you know, it, it's intoxicating. It, it is like cocaine. You know, once people call your name and once you go into a restaurant, you don't have to sit in line anymore. They push you to the top of the list and, you know, they come over to you. Well, can I get you a free bottle of wine? I mean, this is happening, you know, and you begin to think like this is reality. This is the way it's going to be. No, it's, this has a shelf life, you know. Mm -hmm. So while you are thinking about how all this feels, you better be planning for the eventuality of your leaving the game. So yes. you have to start thinking about that from the time you come in. So that's what the rookie transition program is starting to do now. And that is helping guys to become very holistic mm. in terms of how they approach life. Mm. Um, and because when we first did this, the word holistic was not in the vocabulary. But now, you know, um, you got a chance as a African-American or just as a young professional player to be a businessman, you know, at a very high level mm -hmm. um, and to run your whole the business for maybe 20, 30, 40 years. So with that, you better have a holistic perspective in terms of how to invest your money, you know, how to screen people who are going to be your business partners. I mean, how to, you know, deal with ladies who may have different agendas, how to deal with, the, how to have refusal skills to say no to drugs. I mean, you, you have to have those tools. 
And so the NBA rookie transition program does that. The college level uh, program is a little different because these guys are trying to get in the door. And sometimes their fantasies and their aspirational thoughts may exceed reality. What I mean by that is they think, okay, I'm going to come in, I'm going to tear this thing up for one year, and I'm gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they just don't understand. Yeah. They may have the game, but they don't mm. have the lifestyle skills to deal with these adults, you know. Mm -hmm. So thank God for the G League, and uh, thank God for the, the tools and life skill coaching that they get in the G League so that some of these guys who are overly aspirational in their thinking – Mm -hmm. who want to just come in for one year and, and go, that at least they get a chance to test a little reality. Mm -hmm. And once they test a little reality at the G League and they say, this is much harder than what I thought, they yeah. got an option. They can go back to school and get a degree and not play, or they can keep, you know, chasing their dream and see where that leads them. But it's, it's more reality-based. No question. You know? no, no question. Now, so, it, but the, the colleges that I deal with now um, – I try to get my coaches that I'm working with to think in terms of let's let's talk about how what is this kid going to need to transition into this college? What is he going to need? You know, um, the the biggest thing he's going to need is is and this is, sounds so basic. The biggest thing they're going to need is is to have the coach to be the the biggest voice. Mm -hmm. And I know that that sounds so simple to the guys out there, but um, you you can't serve two masters. You know, and if you got your father and then you got your best friends telling you what to do and how to do it, it, it makes it really complicated to, to buy into the culture of, of that college team. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and if, if those messages are blurred, more than likely you're not going to hear anything else that's going to be said to you for that whole year. Absolutely. And so that's going to be a piece established from the beginning that you have to be the voice. If you can do that, then I think you got 50% of your coaching, you know, that player under your belt. But a lot of coaches don't deal with that. They just say, well, you know, his uncle does this and all of that, and he'll be okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> there's a coaching and there's another coaching, and that coaching is superseding your coaching. Yeah. So that's a challenge. Awesome. So we got to get ready to wrap this thing up. So – I usually don't ask people for things here on my interview, but I got to ask you that one day that you'll come back and we can finish. This. This conversation, because I got so much more that I'd like to talk to you about, and you're dropping so many jewels and so many nuggets. I think anybody who we can apply this off the court and in real life as well. So, you know, if I, if I, if we, you <laughs> that's the call out. I accept the call out, brother. I accept it. So, I accept that challenge. <laughs> absolutely. So hopefully we can get you back on here and we can talk some more. And thank you, Steve. And thank you, Claire, for making this, making, getting us on here on this Instagram tonight. Dr. Joe, thank you so much, man. I told you this is my I appreciate 23. you, man. This is my 25th episode, so this is a milestone episode for me, man. And to have you on it, man, you made it, you made it absolutely special. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, brother. All right, take care.